This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, uh, you, you read us an email. Yes. And I was wondering if you could read that email for us today. Okay, here goes. I've been thinking lately, and your first episode on abortion made me think more, about women who are mothers but who don't want to be mothers. Recently, my husband and I were in a <laughs> discussion about division of household duties, and he said to me, face it, you just don't want to be a mother. And I indignantly replied, yes, I do. I love being a mother. But somewhere in the back of my mind was the question, do I really want to be a mother? I have a two-year-old whom I adore, so the ship has sailed on whether I get to be a mother. But do I really want to be a mother now that I am one? What does it mean to be a mother in today's society? If I really am as much of a feminist as I believe that I am, why does it feel like one of the most damning things my husband can say to me is, face it, you just don't want to be a mother? Hey y'all, welcome to Unladylike, where we find out what happens when women break the rules. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And I gotta tell you, I opened our Unladylike email inbox to find that email from listener Amanda describing her maternal ambivalence, and I knew we had to do an episode on it. Um, it, it rang all of my unladylike alarm bells. I just had to talk to her. I'm fascinated when women voice things that they are not supposed to, you know? I mean, obviously, that's, like, part of what we do on Unladylike. Totally. And expressing, like, any degree of mixed feelings about motherhood, like Amanda's doing— is such an unladylike taboo. So when you came to me and you were like, Kristen, we got this email, <laughs> uh-huh. I knew I knew we had to investigate. Yeah. And so today, we're going to talk to Amanda about her feelings of maternal ambivalence and all of the realities attached to it. And then we're going to meet another ambivalent mom who decided to do something to make motherhood work for her. Something that, to be honest, gets her labeled a bad mom. It's all to figure out. What do you do if you love your kids, but don't love and maybe even regret becoming a mom? Well, so, okay, walk me through what was happening that day that you guys were having that um, discussion. (laughs) 
you and your husband? Ah, you know, there's always this question of the labor of the household. Mm -hmm. And I work full time and he works full time. um, And yet I'm still the one who does the bulk of the child care and the house cleaning and the planning for things, the whole like emotional labor side of things. Um, So I'm sure we were just having some conflict about, I'm tired. I'd like to not have to do this. You just don't actually want to be a mom. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. So in the moment when he said that, you guys are already fighting. Like, it's not the greatest moment. And when he says that, how did you react? I mean, well, first, I mean, I obviously denied it. Um, and because I like to argue, um, <laughs> what? you know, I continued denying it. It's not like I'm a lawyer or anything. Um, and But inside, what I felt was shame. You know, saying to a woman, you just don't want to be a mother, I think is a super shaming thing to say um, because it, like, gets at that core idea of what women are supposed to be. And if you're not what a woman is supposed to be, then there's something, like, defective or wrong with you. Kristen, let me just say, as a woman who's certain— not ambivalent at all about not wanting kids and has always been pretty vocal about it. I totally feel what Amanda is saying here. Like, I definitely have gotten scorn and shame and shade from people who basically say that I just don't know my own mind and my own body and that one of these days I'll change my mind because babies are the best thing in the world. Oh, yeah. Ever since I got home from my honeymoon, pretty much, I felt this new pressure of like, okay, TikTok. Are you going to have kids or are you not? And there's even a fancy term for this. It's called pronatalism or socially incentivized baby making. And the basic message is that motherhood is the fullest, most sacred expression, not just of womanhood, but of femininity. And that anything less than just wanting the fullness of that is somehow a failure on our part. Oh, yeah. The pressure is real, y'all. Yeah. Someone seriously needs to write, like, what to expect when you're not expecting. So walk me through, though, the decision to have kids or have a kid. (laughs) And did you always want to be a mom? Did you always want kids? No. Like, I never—it was never a thing that I imagined. Instead, Amanda imagined traveling, maybe even being a foreign diplomat. But then, you know, life happened. She fell in love with a guy. They got married. Eventually, at some point when you're having sex with someone, you're like, oh, my God, I want to have your baby. Um, <laughs> is that how it works? <laughs> it is, actually. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it's weird. It's like it's the next step. So uh, I'm really interested in expectations because I feel like that's where a lot of this, mm-hmm. like, maternal ambivalence, those conversations come from. Walk me through, like, What were your expectations of motherhood and being a mom? I mean, some of it, I think, is, like, from my own mom, who um, was a very good mom, and she—but she, I think, always wanted kids. So I think um, stability and the decision to be in one place, and then there was also a lot of sacrifice— that things were done specifically for your kids, that you may not get to do what you want to do because, you know, the kids come first. Also, I think it comes from 
As children, I don't think we have accurate perception of our parents, you know. Um, So, like, you know, one of the things I think quite frequently is, holy shit, I don't have my shit together. And, like, my child is going to grow up with parents who don't have their shit together. And then I think, I kind of doubt my parents have their shit together. Right. Do you ever ever feel like a bad mom? Yeah. When I'm really excited to take my kid to school (laughs) and go back home. Because I work from home. And and that's when I kind of feel like, but if I were a good mother, I wouldn't want that. If I were a good mother, I would just want him to be with me all the fucking time. Do you know people like that? I don't know. Partially because I don't actually know a whole lot of people with kids this age who aren't part of my husband's church. Mm. And I can't, like, there's still some boundaries, like, even though— I am friends with some of the parishioners, like, there's still boundaries. And so, like, I don't think I would end up hearing that, like, God, I hate being a stay-at-home mom or, you know, whatever. I, mm-hmm. I just don't know if I would even hear that. Yeah. Has anyone, like, externally, literally ever made you feel like a bad mom, whether intentionally or otherwise? Um, You know, I don't. Oh, yes. <laughs> Yes. Yes. Uh, It was a Sunday, and we had church, and then we had something else going on in the evening with choir practice and stuff like that. So I essentially had time to, like, go home, move a load of laundry through the dryer, change clothes, and go back to church. And my son was asleep in the car. And like hell, I'm going to get him out (laughs) of his car seat and put and, like, wake him up. He's never going to go back to sleep. So I pulled into the garage. I left the garage door open, and I left the car running because the vibration's an important thing. Um, But he wasn't going to die because I left the garage door open. (laughs) I also left the door to our house open. So, like, I was right there. Anyway, he got a great nap. I was super pumped because, like, I had successfully moved over a load of laundry and kept my kid napping. So I went back to church, and I was chit-chatting with people. And this one lady was like— Oh, my God, but you hear those stories about, you know, you get out to pump the gas and someone just comes around the other side of the car and just takes the baby right out of there. And I would just be so nervous. And I thought to myself, well, you must have been a fucking better mother than me. You know, Caroline, I totally get Amanda feeling judged and overwhelmed in that moment. But I also wonder about her, like, internal sense of being a bad mom. Like, is it more situational like that or more of a constant presence like, say, postpartum depression? Well, when Amanda's son was born, she did experience pretty severe postpartum anxiety to the point where she actually admitted herself to the emergency room. But she says that that anxiety was totally different than the feelings she wrote into us about. No, to me, they're they're two very separate things. Um, the, the anxiety is... Um, driven more by a desire to be better as a mother, whereas the ambivalence is kind of more of a pulling back. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, it's kind of like this tension, like the anxiety says, more mother, more mother, more mother. And the ambivalence is like, but but I'm a human being and I'm I'm still me somewhere, right? You know, so they're kind of pulling against each other. Yeah. What would you be doing? How would your life be different if you weren't a mother? 
there is something about having a little bit more control over your life. And also things like if I have to work late one day, it's not like I have to move heaven and earth to figure out how my child is going to get home and get fed. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's hard. What's hard for me is that like particularly <clears throat> being a clergy spouse because – My husband's job is 24-7, and we live on the church property, so, like, it's really, like, all around us, which I love. Like, that's a great thing, but it's a little bit more than just being a spouse. Um, And then also then being a mother and then being a full-time employee, and it feels like you can never— give enough mm-hmm. to any of the spaces. And so you just kind of feel like you're half-assing everything all the time. Do you feel like there's room to talk about maternal ambivalence no. and ambivalence about motherhood? No. Why I, not? I do not think we are there yet. Um, I don't know. Like, I think it's possible in a conversation of only female millennials, yes. In that context, yes, I think you could. Um, I think if you start adding other generations in there and you get all of that, like, you're going to miss them when you're their grown-up shit. And, like, I know I will. Okay, but stop fucking telling me that because right now I am covered in macaroni and cheese and I could care – like, I just just want to fucking take a shower without a kid sticking his head and saying, Mommy, you're naked. (laughs) (sighs) Like, yes, I know I'm going to miss that one day, but I – really don't right now. Oh my God. Side note, I get embarrassed if my dog sees me naked. (laughs) Like, what would I do if I had kids? But, you know, Caroline, I bet there are parents listening to this episode right now who so empathize with Amanda. Mm -hmm. But what's a mom to do, you know? Like, you just try to grin and bear it? Well, that's definitely what society would like moms to do. But when we come back, I talk to a woman who was also blindsided by a maternal identity crisis, and she made the radical decision to become a bad mom. Well, I mean, like air quotes, bad mom. So when when you meet a new person and they find out you have a kid, what are they like? What what is their reaction to you? It was this awkward like exchange of like, oh yeah, my daughter. And they're like, oh, you have a daughter? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, oh, well, we should have a play date or there's an Easter egg hunt coming up or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, well, you know, she lives with her dad. And they're like, you could see their face. Like their eyes like cycle through like all these thoughts. You can just see them spinning going oh my God, what? Somebody doing something I don't understand. How do I react? What do I say? What should my face do? We're back and Caroline catches up here. Who's this mom? So this is Christina and she has a seven-year-old daughter named Journey. She is, I guess you could just say a tomboy. Um, She likes Power Rangers and Ninja Turtles and she her favorite activity right now is one, going to Dave & Buster's and two, doing ninja training in the backyard. 
Christina's daughter sounds rad. Yes. And I'm not just agreeing with you because I had my own Ninja Turtles growing up. (laughs) (laughs) But what's up, though, with folks giving Christina the side eye just because she and Journey, like, don't share the same backyard, you know? I mean, most kids today don't grow up in so-called traditional families, i.e. straight, never-divorced biological parents. Yeah, but her parenting situation is non-traditional, even by non-traditional family standards. Like, it it totally challenges our definition of what a good mom looks like. Oh, sounds like I should have checked, like, all of my preconceived parenting notions at the studio door. Too late now. (laughs) So here's what happened. Uh, About six years ago, Christina voluntarily relinquished primary custody of her daughter to Journey's dad. Okay, so voluntarily, as in, like... No neglect, addiction, abuse issues that, like, took Journey away from her. Right, yeah. It was something that Christina decided to do. So I have a parenting plan that says I have her for 28 days in the summer. Guaranteed, right? I can talk to her every day on the phone or on FaceTime. Um, And the rest of visitation is as parties agree. I really wanted to talk to Christina because, like Amanda, she had to face down some super complicated and super taboo feelings about motherhood. And now Christina's thriving, her daughter's thriving, but it's almost like folks don't buy it or they won't buy it. Oh, wow. Okay, so tell me how she got here. Well, like Amanda, Christina didn't really want kids. Honestly, I'd never grown up going, oh, I want kids. I grew up going, I want to be a journalist. I want to be a magazine editor. I want to travel. Never kids. But at 18, Christina joined the Navy. And within just two years, she met a fellow sailor, fell in love, left the Navy, got married to that sailor, and all of a sudden, shit got really real. It was one of those, I'm going to get on birth control next week, but we're going to have unprotected sex anyways because we're cool and 20 (laughs) and married. So um, about six weeks after we got married, I found out that I was pregnant, and that was pretty rough. I remember her dad was like oh, my God, we're having a baby. And I was like, oh, my God, we're having a baby. (laughs) Christina's pregnancy was hellish. Her morning sickness and nausea were so severe, she could barely even keep water down. Plus, her husband was deployed overseas. Her closest friends and family lived all the way across the country. And after Journey was born, things didn't get a whole lot better. It was. I remember being tired all the time. Like, not tired, like, oh, you know, I had a late night, but, like, bone tired. Mm -hmm. Like, I was always just in this constant state of feeling like, am I ever going to feel like myself again? Mm -hmm. Like, I kind of lost who I was. Um, Not necessarily just in being a mom, but I think in— I mean, I guess you could say in being a mom. I want to, like, differentiate it from, like, you know, some people, like, have their identity as a mother. It wasn't so much an identity thing as a, this is literally all I do. Like, I really wanted to travel, but I'm taking care of a kid that I never plan on having. And that, like, disconnect from, like, loving my daughter so much, but also feeling that way, Mm -hmm. it was really challenging. Christina felt increasingly disconnected from her husband, too. So when Journey was about 18 months old, she filed for divorce— packed up, and moved with Journey back to the Atlanta area where she's from. Before she left her marriage, Christina said she had felt like a single mom. Now she actually was one. I was working um, at an insurance adjusting company, um, 
And it was it was rough. I was making like eleven and a half dollars an hour and barely making ends meet. And so I just did not feel like myself. Mm-hmm. I went from like this partying 19-year-old to fast forward. And now I'm like 60 pounds overweight with a kid and like a single mom struggling to get by. And I looked at my life and was like, what the fuck? Like what happened? I think I was just in survival mode, mm-hmm. to be honest. I literally, we would wake up at like six in the morning. I'd get journey off to daycare. Um, thankfully, my my ex-husband's parents were helping me pay for daycare, which was a huge blessing because I wouldn't have been able to afford it otherwise. I was off to work. I'd work overtime when I could because I needed to pay bills. You know, I was able to put food on the table. But I feel like that's such a low standard, right? (laughs) This whole time, Journey's dad was being as involved as he could be. You know, when he wasn't deployed, he'd visit. He paid child support. Eventually, he got remarried, but he knew Christina was struggling as a single mom. So one day, he sent her a text. He's like, why don't you just let her live with us? She has a sister. You know, his wife worked at a private school, so they were able to go for free. And I was like, that's literally never going to happen. Christina was like, I love my daughter. I'm her mother. Why would I give her up? But the more exhausted and depressed Christina became, the more her ex's offer started to sound like that better life she'd been struggling so hard to provide for her daughter. I was so deeply worried that she would think that I didn't love her or that I wasn't giving her what she needed. Mm -hmm. And honestly, when you're that tired, when you're constantly worried about money, it's it's hard to give anything of yourself, even to your child. And how long after your ex had initially planted that idea in your head did you say, okay, yes, you're right? It was about eight months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it took a while. But then once I was like, okay, but yeah, I think I want to do this, it happened really quickly. So she and Journey's dad worked out a basic custody agreement, and then she packed up Journey's stuff again. Only this time, Christina wouldn't be moving with her. I remember when I took her there, I drove down to Florida where they were living at the time. And I made the mistake, honestly, of telling Journey, do you want to live with Daddy? Giving her, like, it was her choice. And I, if I could take anything back, it would be that because it was not her choice. And I should not have put that on her. I thought that I was doing, Mm -hmm. I thought I was making her part of the decision. Like, do you want to help make dinner? (laughs) Now you'll eat it, right? But it doesn't work like that with this kind of thing. So what was her answer? Um, uh, yeah. She was like, yeah, she missed her dad. And I think in my mind at that time was like, oh, she doesn't even need me. Like, it's fine. I know that's not true. Like, it kind of makes me want to tear up, like, thinking of that version of myself believing that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I was in such a place where I, like, I didn't know what to do anymore. Yeah. I think I really reached a point where, like, this isn't the person that I set out to be. And I don't know how to unbecome her. Um, and become someone that I'm proud of and that I'm, you know, the kind of mom I want to be. Someone who's engaged with her kid and joyful and can wake up and make pancakes in the morning instead of being like, okay, here, eat some cereal. We have to walk out the door in five minutes. Like, Mm -hmm. let's go. I didn't want to be that mom. From the outside looking in, though, Christina's decision basically got her branded with a scarlet B for bad mom. I was getting judgment from... Every direction, which was hard, especially because I felt like people weren't going, you know, I can see why you feel like this is something that's necessary. They were going, 
wow, you're just going to give up? Someone said, oh, did the drugs get you? I was like, are you kidding me? Like, I laughed at that one because I was like, it's just so ballsy for you to say that you don't even know me, but okay. You know, even my parents, they were like, how could you? You're a terrible mom. And I was like, you know, okay, okay, cool, thanks. I already feel like a terrible mom, so you telling me that is nothing that I haven't told myself. Even Christina's ex and his wife, who Christina actually does have a pretty good relationship with, would say stuff like, how could you abandon your daughter? What? I mean, I'm going to guess that he probably never had to deal with this level of judgment when he was the non-custodial parent. Oh, of course not. He's a dude, right? And he's in the military, so I think people did understand on some level he can't just pick up and go. He has orders. But yeah, no, dudes never get any shit for anything. Like, as long as you're, like, paying child support and say you love your kid, like, good on you, man. Like, what a great dad. Mm -hmm. But you're a mom who's, like, makes a hard choice, whether it's this or something else. How could you? What kind of, like, what kind of woman are you? Why do you think that is? Well, <laughs> I mean, that's such a loaded question, right? <laughs> and y'all, that's one of a mother load of questions we're about to sort out because, Caroline, it's time to unpack the bad mom's claptrap. And I'm not talking about that Mila Kunis mom-com. I called this emergency PTA meeting to address an issue that affects the safety of our children. Terrorism. The bake sale. Okay, so in Unpack the Claptrap, we try to figure out why things are the way they are. And today, we're starting, Caroline, by looking at what the role of mother means today in our culture. And let me tell you, the job description is pretty unending. Because today's mom is a 24-hour homework helping, Pinterest craft failing, dinner cooking, (laughs) caregiver, and provider. She's like never off the clock. Yeah, I mean, just look at Amanda. Here she is, both she and her husband with full-time jobs, but somehow like her husband's job comes first because Amanda's still the one who, after she's done working a full-time job, still has to do the bulk of like the kid planning and management. But you have to ask whether this version of motherhood that we're so into right now is a natural expression of motherhood or one that just reflects a very specific time and place. I think it's definitely the latter. I think that these expectations and this image of mothering and momming, like, it's definitely an indication of where we are right now. Um, I mean, the only constant about motherhood is the pressure on women to be mothers. I mean, you go back to the original mandate to be fruitful and multiply. Like, (laughs) no pressure, ladies, but human existence depends on you to keep popping out babies. And men have really always dictated the rules about what mother means. And so mother means whatever the patriarchal system of that period needs it to be. So if we go, for instance, like pre-enlightenment, the role of a mom only encompassed like (laughs) keeping the kids alive. Um, But because women were considered so inferior to men, like moms were certainly not these angelic creatures that we think of today. No, no, there weren't any like medieval moms like baking brownies for their kids' medieval bake sales. No, no, those yieldy brownies. But the fascinating thing is to see how capitalism and industrialization really shifted the role of motherhood starting in the 1800s when 
the men really leave the house and we start to have the whole separate spheres doctrine of women's place being as the domestic goddesses and also sort of the the moral guides for the children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is also where we first see that concept of maternal instinct start to arise. It's something that you are supposed to have and you're defective if you don't. Motherhood is sacred, children are sacred, and that bond between them is supposed to be this beautiful sacred thing. But of course, who invented the concept of maternal instinct? Uh, that that would be dudes. Dudes, yes. Sciency philosophizing dudes. Right, yeah. Enlightenment thinkers. And with the 20th century, we see family size start to decrease, and the expectation of mothers morphs into this more, like, scientific, scheduled role with, like, rules and regulations, basically. Like, mothers are encouraged to approach child-rearing as a vocation. I mean, you have all of these different rules to make the best little citizens that they could. Can you imagine those medieval moms looking at this? Like, I just have to bake some more bread. This is ridiculous. Get out of my way. So a legal fact that surprised me in all of this, Caroline, was that it was only in the 1920s that we even start to presume that if a couple breaks up, that the kids would probably live with mom. So that's really when mothers start to be seen as the parent primarily responsible for the child, which is a lot of pressure. And the real revolutionary shift comes right as reproduction becomes a choice for women, or at least the women who can afford to choose, right? In 1960, the FDA approves the birth control pill for married women's contraceptive use. And then in 1973, abortion is legalized. And suddenly there are choices for women in this role, like whether they're going to take it on at all. And that's when we see a lot of regret and ambivalence start to percolate in the conversation. But now if you decide to become a mom, it's something you've done to yourself. So if you don't like the role, well, bitch, you didn't have to take it. And that's just compounded by women being more involved in the workforce. As women's extra domestic and extra maternal autonomy has increased, so have the expected caregiving duties and desires of motherhood. Like, basically, the message is, ladies, you can have your careers or whatever, so long as you remember your most important unpaid career which is having kids and raising them. Even though moms are statistically spending more time with their kids than ever, they're feeling guiltier about not being good enough moms because you've got all of these clashes of expectation and reality, layers and layers of centuries and centuries of bullshit that's built up about what moms are supposed to be. And Caroline, the research I've read has revealed like a couple of interesting themes, like specifically this sense of betrayal, like being betrayed by the cultural myth of maternal Mm -hmm. instinct Mm -hmm. that says, you know what, even if you have a tough pregnancy, it's all going to be okay because at some point your brain and body will just naturally adjust and make you want everything that comes with motherhood and make you somehow be able to do it all in 24 hours a day. Mm, I bet Christina would have a few choice words for that. (laughs) I mean, I have a few (laughs) choice words for it and I don't even have a kid. But when you look at the ways that the roles of moms have changed over time, it's so easy to see that motherhood is this infinitely flexible thing molded to fit the social structure of the moment. It's ideology, not biology. Which can be a liberating notion. Like, 
oh yeah, the social order is kind of gaslighting us, so we'll fill the role that needs to be filled and stay out of the roles where we're not wanted. And maybe these days, like, capitalism needs us to stay anxious in order to, like, buy things for the kids and send them to daycare but still go and work and, like, fuel the economy but still be isolated from one another so we buy more things to make us feel okay and the cycle just continues. And no wonder we get lost in the woods. And that's how women like Amanda and Christina wind up at the point they're at. So let's get back to these women and hear how they're bucking the pressure right after this break. We're back, and we're talking about motherhood with two women who felt like they don't fit the societal job description. Which made us want to hear from Christina about what motherhood actually means to her as a non-custodial parent. I feel like my role as a mother is not to be necessarily making her breakfast every day and packing her lunch. If I don't have the day-to-day snuggles and cuddles and love, like, in-person love with her that I you know, would have if this weren't our situation, um, then I think it allows me to step into a role where I am a whole, vibrant, thriving person. And she gets the role model of going, being a mom doesn't have to look like you're sacrificing who you are. It just, there's a lot of different ways to have a family. There's a lot of different ways to be a mom. And I know my mom loves me. I think that that's the role, right? I'm her safe space. Caroline, I got to say, hearing Christina describe what motherhood means to her is not going to fulfill a lot of people's definitions of what mothering means, Mm -hmm. you know, because it means that you are there constantly, that you are doing all of the day in and day out care work. Mm -hmm. But if we took gender out of this situation— I would probably assume it was like a divorced dad. You know what I mean? It sounds like the kind of fluid parenting that we allow men so much more Mm -hmm. than women. And honestly, like, however Christina chooses to define motherhood for herself and her role in her daughter's life, what she is doing along the way is working to provide things for Journey that she herself feels she didn't get. When I was growing up, like, my dad was in the military as well, my stepdad, and my mom, you know, was a stay-at-home mom, and <sighs> my mother. <laughs> so a succinct way of saying it is she was pretty emotionally absent, mm-hmm. always physically present, like always, but never really emotionally there. I think the first time I remember thinking, why doesn't she love me? I was Journey's age, so seven. And, like, as a seven-year-old, you don't understand that, you know, moms are people, too, and she's got her own shit, and it's not really about you, and it's not your fault. But, um, but I did feel that, and I grew up with that, like, really heavy, like, what did I do? Why don't why doesn't she like me? But my goal is to break the cycle completely and say, you know, me not being in Journey's life every single day— It's hard sometimes. I'm not going to sit here and be like, I'm just cry all day and I miss her and I I don't regret my decision. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I leave for Peru for two weeks tomorrow. How fucking cool is that? I can have a kid and see her sometimes and also 
do the things that make me a better person because I feel fulfilled. Yeah. So I am curious because that sounds great, but I can totally hear, like, in the distance, other people being, like, selfish. Do yeah. you Do people say that to you? Like, how do people react? If you were to just, like, meet someone or see someone for coffee today and you were like, yeah, like, I have my daughter um, and she's with her dad, but, like, I get to go to Peru for two weeks. Like, what reaction do you typically get? You know what? I think people <laughs> people can handle, like, okay, you, you don't live with your daughter. Okay. Because, you know, you had valid reasons, so I can accept that you made a choice. Okay, whatever. And then I'm like, yeah, I'm going to Peru. They're like, well, what about Journey? And I'm like, well, she's at school with her dad. And they're like, but how can you? But like, what? What? I always think of when people say what like that. It's like W-U-T space question mark. (laughs) Like, what? What? (laughs) And I'm like, like, why is that the, the thing that makes people like, go, wait, what? <laughs> I wonder if it just throws them off because, like, oh, wow, that is really for you. Right, because I think there is this expectation that, like, I just sit at home and I wait for her. to have, And honestly, for a while, I did. I was scared to travel because I felt like it would make me feel bad. And I didn't want to feel bad because I already mm-hmm. felt bad enough. Mm-hmm. And I remember that, like, it's also okay that I did it for me because I think that's something that I really struggled with for a long time. It was like, well, it was just for her. It was the best thing for her. And now I go, it was the best thing for both of us. It's okay for women and mothers especially, to say, yeah, I'm being selfish right now. Right before I talked to her, Christina had just spent a week with Journey for spring break. And while the time she gets with her daughter feels so special to her, it doesn't make her clamor to change their arrangement. When have you felt like a bad mom? When she asks, can I come live with you? And in my head, I'm like, no. Because I feel like the natural conclusion is, well, it was hard, and now you're in a better place, and you make more money, and you're remarried, and your life is stable and good, and you're happy. Of course you'd want her back. Look, I don't love being a mom. I love Journey. Christina's now a freelance writer. She's remarried and not planning on any more kids. And she makes enough money to do all of those things she wanted to do before. Pay for special things for Journey. Go on trips all by herself. Christina's published a few articles about her decision to give up primary custody of Journey. And every time she does, she says the overwhelming response she gets is from other moms. They're not judging her, but asking her, like, how can I have what you have? I'm scared to step out in this weird, unknown path. And I think it goes without saying that Christina's solution to ambivalent motherhood is not going to work for everyone or even most people. But I do think she's found a way to be a mom on her own terms, and that can be pretty inspiring. Which brings us back to Amanda, the mom who originally wrote in to us. So do you want to be a mother now that you are one? So I'm going to answer by not answering your question immediately. Mm -hmm. Um, So the new Brandi Carlisle album, she's got this song on there called Mother. um, And she's singing to her daughter like that she's the mother of Evangeline. And she's singing about like the first thing that you did was you, you know, took away my sleep and my selfishness. And, you know, uh, you broke every heirloom that I was never meant to keep. And you trashed my car and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And um, in a very loving way, but also like very much pointing out how profoundly not yours 
your life is anymore. And I think I definitely I love being a mother. But it's I don't know. It's uh it's not like the be all end all of my life. Yeah. Like, you know, I think there's this like one idea of motherhood which is that like you're focused on you know the soccer games and you know you're coming up with cool art projects and shit like that and like I don't know that's that's not really me and I think it's just that like I have to find my own way of being a mother and um, figuring out how to carve out space for me to still be myself because I think what I miss the most is myself getting to be with myself so yes I do want to be a mother but it's hard honestly Caroline I feel like just being able to really and truly acknowledge the fact that yes it is hard would go a long way for a lot of ambivalent moms and parents out there yeah exactly recognizing and embracing those feelings can be hard, you know? But the important thing to remember is that all of those feelings are normal. Ultimately, they just indicate that you're a human person who had a life before kids and who right now might be struggling with some pretty common what-if type questions. And there are some silver linings in the research. Like, one upside of getting honest about maternal regret is that it opens up the potential for what scholars call integrated maternal identity, Mm. which is basically just a fancy term for what we've been talking about. Like, a way to figure out the parenting style that works the best for you. And if it happens that your integrated maternal identity is non-custodial, Research finds that voluntary non-custodial moms usually have an improved parent-child relationship under the arrangement, despite the backlash. And really, isn't it that relationship with the child that matters the most? Yeah, and to me, that just further illustrates the point that there's, there's no one way to be a good mom. And listeners, we want to know from y'all about this topic because obviously it's something that needs a safe space for conversation. So consider our inbox just that. Email us at hello at unladylike.co with your thoughts on ambivalent parenthood. Are you an ambivalent mom? Are you friends with an ambivalent mom? Do you have any tips or ideas of what to do if you are grappling with these really complicated feelings. Because if we've learned anything in this episode, Caroline, it's that those feelings are real, they Mm -hmm. are valid, and you are not alone. Yeah, I mean, just take a page out of Amanda's book and shoot us an email. We mothers need some time to be ambivalent. That's right. I have a place I need to go. It has foam walls. (laughs) Yeah, yes, exactly, it does. Super safe space. (laughs) So, Caroline, you talked to Amanda for this episode almost three months ago, and you actually heard back from her recently with an update, right? Yeah, that's right. So since we interviewed Amanda, she's actually made some progress in defining her own integrated maternal ambivalence. Amanda actually separated from her husband, and together they're figuring out how to co-parent their son. 
And as for Christina, you can find her writing at our website, unladylike.co. And you can find all of the resources and sources for this episode there. And if y'all like hearing about breaking the taboos of motherhood and non-momhood, you're going to love our book. It's called Unladylike, a field guide to smashing the patriarchy and claiming your space. So head over to our website. Again, that's unladylike.co to pre-order it today. Abigail Keel is the senior producer of Unladylike. Mixing and sound design is by Casey Holford. Julie Subrin is our editor. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit McCohen, and Sarah Tudson. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Jenny Radelet. And we are your hosts, Caroline Irvin. And Kristen Conger. And next week, clothing, shirts, pants, dresses, socks and shoes. You've heard it all. Oh, clothes. It's so hard to get dressed sometimes. Why is that? Society. We, as in you, me, all y'all, are talking about power dressing and dishing out advice on how to dress for success and and whether that's even possible. Be sure to subscribe to Unladylike in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. And remember, got a problem? Get Unladylike. And I'm not talking about that Mila Kunis ensemble, Mamadi. Momcom? Commie mommy? Nope. That's a communist mom. <laughs> Stitcher. <laughs>